This podcast is brought to you by The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo. Shipping products as easy as sending emails. In this episode of the Lodestar podcast, I'll be joined by Alpha Liner's Jan Tideman, Judah Levine of Freitas, and the Lodestar's very own Nick Savides, our sprightly new overlord of the Lodestar news desk. We'll be getting an update from southern China where COVID infections brought some ports to a standstill in June. We'll also explore how and why detention and demorage charges are surging and what the FMC might do about it. Plus, in this capacity-constrained environment, we'll look at the pros and cons of even larger container ships. Then, for the main event, we'll turn to a company that is by most counts the world's largest freight forwarder, DHL Global Forwarding. I'll be talking exclusively to CEO Tim Sharwat. With higher rates, it's always a bit more positive for forwarders because they can then, based on that, if you think about a consolidation effect between 5 and 10%, you can make more money if the rate is 10 euros compared to if the rate is 1 euro. Hello everybody, I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar Podcast. I'm very pleased to say I'm joined today by an old colleague of mine, as well as being the new and dynamic news editor at the Lodestar. Hello, Nick Savides. Hello. Hello, Mike. I've never been called dynamic before. This is a first for everything, Nick. (laughs) Now, just before we get started, a quick note to listeners. If you're here primarily to hear our exclusive interview with DHL, you can find that just before 25 minutes. So, Nick, straight into it. The Lodestar has been covering events on the Pearl River Delta throughout June. Over there in China, we've had these major backlogs building at the port of Yanshan due to COVID infections. And this has had a ripple effect on container shipping schedules and port congestion. Now, in a moment, I'll bring in Judah Levine, research head at Freitas, to explain how this is playing out in terms of freight rates. But what is the current situation on the Pearl River? The latest has been an announcement from the Port of Yantian and Hutchison Group, actually, who run the Yantian International Container Terminal, saying that from midnight on the 24th of June, local time, they will return to normal working, which is good news for everybody. The bad news is it's still going to take some weeks to clear the backlog because it is so vast. At some point, they were running at just 20% of capacity. So the backlog there is enormous. And it's had a ripple effect, as you said, um, with the ports around the Pearl River Delta, the Nansha, Sheku, Jiwan, etc. So it, it will take time for that to clear. Those backlogs are also having a huge impact on freight rates, which makes it the perfect time to bring in Judah Levine from Freitos. Hello, Judah. Hi, Mike. Hello, Nick. Judah, is there any end in sight to these endless jumps in rates shippers have been suffering on the major front hall lanes uh, on the FBX that, that we've seen right through the third week of June? Unfortunately, no. So it's not just the latest disruption. It's really something we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic and in ocean freight pressure on rates have begun really a year ago in June. So first we saw people spending on goods instead of services. It doubled in ocean rates in terms of the demand pushing rates up from June till September on the Trans-Pacific. Then the, the knock-on effect of a container shortage that, you know, all these um, delays, especially on the U.S. West Coast, meant less capacity available to all exporters or importers from Asia. And that quadrupled rates 
um, from Asia to Europe and the Mediterranean. And then we had a stabilizing of, of rates um, from the start of the year, more or less, before rates started climbing again on the Suez. And now the NTN is, is the latest. So if we talk numbers uh, a little bit, so since the end of May, when the Yantian disruption began, from Asia to the U.S. West Coast, rates have, have increased 28%, and they're up to nearly $7,000 for FEU. To the East Coast, it was the biggest jump of 36%, and the spot rate is more than $10,000 for FEU. And then to North Europe and to the Mediterranean from Asia, also about 19, 20%. And both of those are right around $11,000 per FEU. So we've seen a jump since then. And it's important to remember that uh, the index is measuring spot rates and really freight of all kinds. But in actuality, at this point, when things are so overloaded and congested, many shippers are going to be paying possibly thousands of dollars beyond that in terms of premiums or the actual bookable rate at, at that time. And those increases that you talked about from May, that's on top of near record or record rates already. And we're still talking 20, 30 odd percent. Where, where does this end? I mean, are we expecting more Yanchans or, or major disruptions? Because there seems to be one after another. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like you said, it's really been building one on top of the other. And the reason that this continues to keep pressure on rates, either from falling or continuing to, to increase, is that there's just been no uh, breathing room. So uh, under normal circumstances, if we didn't have this you know, record year of really peak level volumes nonstop for almost 12 months now, when there are disruptions, there's extra capacity to kind of alleviate that. So if a, a ship has some kind of incident and, and is stuck or is delayed in a destination port, carriers will bring on extra capacity to fill in for that scheduled slot at the, at the next origin. But in these situations, the way really all available capacity is already activated, there's just been no breathing room and no opportunity to clear those backlogs and then get back to the baseline. So when you look at that supply-demand equation, presumably you conclude from what you've just said that there's no reason why rates might soften anytime soon. There's just no shipping capacity out there, bearing in mind that we're going into what would traditionally be considered shipping peak season. Yeah, uh, definitely. So, I mean, first of all, in the current climate, soften is really a relative term. But like you said, we're about to hit the, the, the peak season, which, you know, already is a time when we would expect elevated demand and elevated rates. Um, but we're coming off a year where, you know, from Asia to the U.S., we had three different times that monthly records were set for uh, monthly volumes of containers. So first in October of last year and then again in um, March and now in May uh, of this year. So volumes and demand is incredibly elevated. And, you know, despite all these other delays like the Suez and, and Yan Tien, uh, it's really demand which is driving all of this and demand continues to outstrip supply. And these disruptions just further restrict capacity, which puts pressure on the rates. Are we seeing equipment and ships diverted onto the most profitable headhaul routes? Are you seeing any sign of that and away from less profitable lanes? Yes. Yeah, so I, I can't say specific, you know, sailings or specific ships that I can, you know, look at data and say this has been moved from here to there. But there certainly are indications that that is the case. So if we look at kind of uh, a couple less high volume, still major trade lanes, but not as, as significant as Asia to U.S. or to Europe, we can see that on the transatlantic rates more or less were, were steady throughout the pandemic until about February of this year. And, and since then, rates have increased 156%. They were about $2,000, which is about the norm. Uh, and they've increased to $5,000 per FEU on, on the uh, spot market. And same thing from Europe to South America, to the East Coast, also 155% gain 
since March from about $900 to more than, than 2000. And there had been uh, announcements or reporting of blank sailings to, uh, to the transatlantic, which I had seen in the last uh, couple months. It is reasonable to assume that some capacity was moved from those lanes and added to the more major lanes like coming out of Asia. Freitas has been surveying Amazon sellers about how the shipping crisis impacted prime days. How bad are inventory shortages and price increases getting? And are these now being passed on to end consumers as far as that survey would lead you to believe? Many users of the Fredos.com marketplace are SMB importers. And a lot of those, uh, you know, sell those imports on Amazon. And so we wanted to see how all the disruptions in, in freight had been impacting them. And there's been a lot of talk of, of you know, logistics is certainly one of them. So we actually ran the survey in uh, January and then again at the beginning of June. And what we found is that in June, almost half of SMBs were importing so because of increased costs in, in logistics. And that was up from about a third, only six months before. At the same time, about a third said that they're reducing their margins. So they're passing on costs to, to their customers. They're also absorbing some of those costs, which is also painful to these sellers. And in terms of the delays and how that is, is disrupting, in terms of Amazon sellers and how they thought this would impact Prime Day, uh, nearly half said they thought there would be shortages because of delays. So there's just not enough time to pull inventory, especially as sales are so brisk. Small retailers and large retailers as well are having trouble keeping inventories at the level they want. There was a report recently about Home Depot, which is a major importer to the U.S., chartering their own container ship because they just want to have some reliability and make sure that inventory is coming. So as inventories remain low, even once we have this shift back to, to spending on services, there's still going to be a period of restocking, which is anticipated, which would keep ocean volumes and the demand and prices up. When would you advise them that things might get better for, for those people in terms of costs? When might some of these things be resolved? As you said, is that peak season is, is beginning now. So even if somehow demand uh, relaxes through spending on services, you're still going to have that peak season demand, which even if we come down from those peak volumes, at least the U.S. that we saw in May, it's still going to be very elevated and we're already starting at, at a deficit. So I would say no earlier than after peak season, which trails off around November, but we have this period of, of inventory restocking, which is anticipated, and then that will bring us into to Lunar New Year which is in early February, 2022. So the anticipation is it's going to be another while until we can expect any significant easing, possibly into the first few months of next year. Jude Levine, thank you very much for joining us on the Lowstar podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Nick, that was excellent input from Judah. Following on from that, one of your recent stories illustrated just exactly how reliant shippers are on that trans-Pacific supply chain and how they're being hammered by higher costs. It's not just the shipping freight rates, is it? It's not, no, it's, they're also being hammered by the lines and the ports, actually, on detention and demurrage charges. Now, talking to the FMC, what they were saying is that the intention of the regulations around detention and demurrage was to maintain the flow of cargo. Uh, clearly, that's not happening. And that's not because of what the lines have done. However, charging detention and demurrage charges it, it means that shippers are paying large amounts of money for storing a container which they can't move, which is ludicrous. So the, the FMC have now started to look at this in more detail. They had the fact-finding 29 investigation by Commissioner Dye, Rebecca Dye. Uh, that's continuing. They had a discussion at Congress, the House Subcommittee on Tran Transport, 
where shippers were saying we're just being fleeced by the lines and by the ports for these demurrage charges. And I suspect there, there are rumblings that there will be changes to the law and to the regulation around detention and demurrage because it simply can't go on. I was speaking to Container Exchange to put some numbers on detention, demurrage, and they've done a recent study which was based on a survey done in March comparing 2021 to 2020. And, and US shippers are suffering a lot more than those in other areas of the world. Long Beach and LA, those rates for detention and demurrage, which is based on two weeks after the box is unloaded, the actual numbers are up a lot year on year. But just to give you an idea of how much that adds up to on average, it's something like $4,000 over two weeks at both Long Beach and LA, which makes them the most expensive ports in the world. And that compares, say, to Antwerp at just over $1,100 US dollars. If you take the top 20 container ports, Busan was the cheapest out of them all at only $204. Now that's a far cry from $4,000 that US shippers are looking at. Now just setting aside detention and demurrage, what really strikes me in the US is not only are we seeing shippers being stung on shipping rates, and this has prompted Home Depot, as Judah mentioned, to charter its own vessel. But if you look at those Baltic air freight indices as well, air cargo is still very expensive. And carriers in those premium markets have been trying to dump their least profitable customers, haven't they, Nick? Yeah, you're right. Uh, FedEx uh, dumped 1,400 less than uh, full load customers, which they thought were least profitable, I guess. And uh, that was on the 21st that happened of June. By the 22nd, I understand they've uh, had a rethink. So I'm assuming that the customers were rebelling against FedEx. We don't know exactly what's gone on. We have not been able to speak to FedEx. I understand that they're rowing back on this initial dumping of customers, which I think was uh, shocking the way it was handled, frankly. What all of these strands that we're talking about, it all comes back to this problem that shippers are facing where really we're looking at a global shortage of capacity across all modes. Alpha Line, interestingly, has been examining the pros and cons of even larger ship designs as a means of increasing capacity and reducing costs, which brings me nicely to Jan Tideman, senior shipping analyst at Alpha Liner. Hello, Jan. Hello, Mike. Jan. Alpha Liner and Oceans One recently did some great research on the potential of a new container ship design, which would be even larger than the 20, 24,000 TU capacity ULCVs in service now. Can you explain to our listeners what the Gigamax is exactly and how likely it is that we'll see it in service anytime soon? Well, we took a look at today's order book for large container ships. And you see that ships kind of form standard classes. There's new Panamaxes and there's Megamaxes. And there's basically a class of vessels that we call the Megamax, which has started to dominate the Far East uh, Europe trade in the last few years. And that's the Megamax 24. That's a ship that's 400 meters long. We call it 24 because it's 24 container rows wide. And many terminals, both in Asia and, and Europe at the main ports. And nowadays they can handle these ships. They have no problem with the lengths. They have no problem with the beam and the number of containers they have to reach across. And also fairways, rivers are in many cases adapted to this kind of, of vessel. And so our idea was, well, what if uh, container ships would grow even 
past that megamux to an even bigger class and we called it the gigamux just for fun to have a name for that uh, hypothetical ship we said what would be a realistic growth step because in terms of shipbuilding ships can theoretically become as as big as you'd like them to get and we found that the realistic step we believe would be to make the ship one hold longer and one hold is always two containers. So we would go from a length of 24 containers to a length of uh, 26 containers, which is about 425 meters compared to 400 meters for the current generation ship. And we also said, what is a realistic beam for these ships? And you can do various options. You can do a ship which is just too longer, but not wider. Anyway, we played around with the data and the most realistic ship we found in terms of how to build it, how it would perform on the oceans, would be what we call the Gigamax 26. As the name says, it's 26 row wide, so it's two rows wider than the current ships, and two containers longer. And if you do the mass and you do some calculations depending on, on details of the design and the propulsion option, these ships would reach about 28,000 uh, TU compared to 24,000 TU for the current largest class. And we think that this ship is kind of a realistic compromise because you can always go larger and larger and larger, but economies of scale are, are decreasing. And of course, at a certain size of ships, yeah, you'll also have a lot of uh, problems in ports and in fairways. And we think that this ship might be uh, a realistic options that could st still fit within the constraints of maybe not all, but at least of the main ports in the Asia-Europe trade. How likely is this to happen if any of the container lines looking at it? Well, the honest answer to that is, well, we don't know. We started with a hypothetical ship. We wanted to, to look at a ship which can be built, which can be handled in ports with some of the restrictions. And we wanted to make a case whether the ship still creates economies of scale and savings. Many shipping lines right now have bet their money on the current largest generation of ships, the Megamax 24. And there are many, many of these ships currently on order. So there's no real immediacy or urgency to move to yet another bigger ship class. Um, and we're not saying the ship will be here next year or they will be ordered soon, but at least that's a ship class where we believe technically it's still feasible and it will still bring savings on these very long Asia to Europe routes. Whether somebody will actually go for these ships in the near future, well, to be honest, we're in, in crystal ball territory. The point was not to say these ships will come. The point was to say we believe these ships will still generate savings over the current uh, generation of vessels. And of course, that means per container savings. In total, such a ship is more expensive and more expensive to run, but if you break it down across 28,000 containers compared to 24,000, it's still a bit cheaper per container. From a shipper's point of view, not many of them are very happy at the moment. Any no. liner customers, they've got these huge, massive rates, lots of surcharges and lots of delays. Are there any benefits for bigger ships from a shipper's point of view? On an operational basis, in terms of schedule, I think it wouldn't make much of a difference. If the cargo is already on a 24,000 EU ship going to 28,000, doesn't make much of a difference. However, what, what we see is if you look to major cargo owners or forwarding companies, they are putting an increasing focus on green supply chains. And uh, many of them said they would be prepared to pay a premium on rates for the container, which 
is shipped in the most environmentally friendly way. And maybe at some point in time, uh, cargo owners will, will shift their priorities to move away from uh, purely going by price and going for the cheapest price and will be prepared to pay a certain, admittedly pro probably small premium for a container which is transported with fewer emissions over the entire supply chain. So that might be an incentive for the cargo owners. Jan, thanks very much for joining us on the Lodestar podcast. My pleasure. So Nick, having listened to that interview, personally, I can see a lot of disadvantages of carriers going bigger, but would you 100% rule it out given that I'm sure we've shared a few press conferences over the years where people didn't really believe it made sense to go to even 10,000 TU, never mind 24,000 TU and above. Well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? The terminals managed to keep up with the size of the ships by extending key sides, deepening drafts and building ships that are much wider. So the effect of these larger ships has been double-sided because what's happened is that while the shipping lines have got a better unit cost for transporting cargo, the terminals are forking out large amounts of money in order to increase the infrastructure to handle the cargo that's coming in. And actually, what you can see is that the effect in Europe and, and the US is partly to do with the fact that these large ships are coming in with very large loads of containers. And the infrastructure on the land side is not there to dissipate that cargo. So there's not enough chassis in America. The, the rail infrastructure is not supporting that level of cargo coming in. And there's a similar story with inland transportation in Europe and other places. The other side of it is that the ships if you followed the um, accidents that have been happening in the Pacific over the winter, there have been a spate of cargo losses. And that's partly because, and I'm told this by the Accident Investigation Bureau in the Netherlands, that because the ships are wider, they are more stable. So when they roll, they want to come back quicker to that upright position. And that creates a, a huge force on the lashings of the cargo securing technology which was actually designed in 1983 or somewhere around that time so that hasn't improved and that could be one of the reasons why we're seeing so many cargo losses because of these much larger ships now could they get larger yes how are we going to make them safe how are we going to make them stop losing cargo over the side that's a, a good question and maybe we've reached the point at which we can no, no longer support larger ships in so many of those cases, including cargo overboard, but also we're looking at the Ever Given, quite often the seafarer ends up taking the blame. Now, 25th of June was Day of the Seafarer. And I just want to finally just think about what that means. A year ago on the 2020 iteration of the Day of the Seafarer, we had hundreds of thousands of seafarers stuck on ships, unable to return to their families due to COVID lockdowns and travel bans. Now, a year on, We've got lots of cases whereby, irrespective of the COVID threat, governments are denying emergency medical treatment to seafarers. We've also had multiple cases of countries refusing to help with the repatriation of seafarers that have died on board the ship. One container ship had to divert to Italy from Asia because Italy was the only place that would accept the body. In another case, it took almost two months to get a corpse off a ship. Seafarers also can't travel easily, they struggle to get vaccines, they can't leave the ship at port, they struggle to get home. I think all of this is a dereliction of duty by us all. Now one 
former CEO of a ship management company, Frank Coles, has said until seafarers go on strike and actually threaten global trade, nobody will care. It's a real sad state of affairs when these are the guys that we depend on to deliver our food and energy and all these goods which are driving the demand we're discussing here. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Mike. And, and it is interesting that someone said to me quite recently, if you look at the composition of the crews for fleets, officers are generally from first world countries, able seamen, the lower ranks come from third world countries. Now, is it the case that if these people were from Europe or the US, they would be treated better? And, and I suspect there may be something of that too. Um, and I hate to raise that question, but I think it's important that we face it as a possibility. That's a very good point, Nick, and it's certainly not one I would disagree with. Thanks for joining me on this episode. Right, next up, we speak to DHL. On this latest episode of the Lodestar podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Tim Sharwat. CEO of DHL Global Forwarding, a member of the management board of Deutsche Post DHL Group. Hello, Tim. Hi, Mike. Tim, we've had uh, a series of unprecedented hits to global supply chains, most recently on the Pearl River Delta with port closures due to a COVID outbreak. But previously, we've had the closure of the Suez Canal, the grounding of much of the global passenger fleet. We've got an unheard of shortage of containers and ships. We've got record numbers of containers being lost off ships vessels being quarantined. Are we now at the stage when we look at global supply chains where it makes sense to plan for more shocks rather than assume we'll be returning back to normal anytime soon? Well, Mike, if I listen to the way you've just summed up all the things that have happened probably in the last one and a half years, one could come to that conclusion that in a way, when everything goes bad, things keep coming on top, which also go bad. And that's probably something which we see. But if you also take a look into what you've just said, I think the, the things that are really making differences and are disrupting our supply chains at the moment are more COVID related. And I think it started all in a way, say last year, when in the second quarter, when we saw the first real lockdowns, especially here also in Europe, that we saw on the ocean freight side, especially that some carriers pulled out of out of their capacity and then it spiked very quickly in the third quarter again and since then we've been in a way trying to catch up what happened then that through, through that um, taking out of capacity and then of course we have the the headaches that we have around COVID breakouts in certain countries so we see the west coast situation in the u.s we see now, as you rightfully say, the Yangtiang situation where ships are just not being unloaded and offloaded in the speed that we are used to this. And that, of course, then causes containers to be not there where they should be. And that, of course, then causes the disruption that we see. And that is all then paired apart by the situation in air freight where due to the reduction of international passenger flights, we don't have the capacity that we need. And since we can't spend our money traveling or for leisure in parts of the world, we start spending our money for other stuff like power tools, garden furniture. I'm trying to get a refrigerator and I'm trying to get a washing machine at the moment, a dishwasher. It's quite cumbersome to get one, the one that I want, or actually my wife wants, in time. So it's in a way unpresented what, we, what we're noticing. 
But I think it does have to do mostly with the situation and the pandemic situation that we have in the world, which if you think about is also pretty unreal and is something which is probably going to continue to be a part of our thinking, at least in the transportation side, but I think overall uh, for the next yeah, months to come. Just rewinding that clock back, as you say, the root cause of all of this is pandemic or the root cause of most mm. of it, at least. If we go back to that first quarter, second quarter last year, and it became clear that COVID-19 was going to change everything. What was it like for you with responsibility of 43,000 employees? I mean, you've had this stellar career more than 20 years at Kuna and Nagel. You joined DHL in 2017. What did that experience um, give you in terms of personal resources you could draw upon to help you manage the whole situation from a business or, or personal perspective? I still remember very well what happened in those March days last year when we were sitting in Bonn having, having a board meeting and trying to get our heads around what was going on. And I remember driving from Bonn to Hamburg. That's where I live. That's also in my home offices. That's where I am today, actually. And thinking of how, how do you do this? Because it was a totally different thing than I ever experienced before. And I, no one that I know and no one ever told me that this was something where you could pull, you know, out of the drawer, plan 24, and then you knew exactly what to do. And we had some internal discussions then within DGFF to make sure that we align ourselves globally. You also found out very quickly through, you know, picking up the phone or having Skype calls with colleagues that the situation around the world is totally different, totally fluid. So when we speak of a lockdown in Germany, for example, compared to the lockdowns you went through in the UK, there are quite some differences. So, and that was also probably the reason why for us, it was first and foremost, the most important thing was to make sure that our employees feel safe. And it's not just a sentence, they had to feel safe because we also noticed pretty quickly, if they don't feel safe, if they don't feel that their families are safe, they will not be able to do the job. And the job was getting very complicated because things changed so much. So whenever it was possible, we switched to home office to give them this cozy feeling also. And even today, a lot of our colleagues are still working from home. In countries like Brazil and India, it's still places where you have to be very careful. We also made sure that our colleagues get as soon as we were able, as we were able to get protective gears. We also made sure they were getting protective gears so they could feel safe when they handled the cargo and they had to go back to offices and stuff like that. So just that they always get a good feeling here. And then it was all around trying to make sure that the business for our customers worked because our customers were also in a very difficult position. They also were facing the fear of what was going on. They didn't know. So they were relying very much on our expertise to explain to them what has changed and what is different now and why the flight they were used to book on suddenly wasn't there anymore. And we had circumstances where, for example, the Chinese government changed the customs regulation exporting PPE goods from China overnight. And of course, they don't send you those documents then to the receiving countries in English. It has to be in Mandarin. You need a good network to get these things then sorted. So you were still able to, in some, some shape or form, keep the supply chains of the customers running. And that was also an important thing because through communications with our customers, they were able to use our communication to talk to their leadership teams, to explain to them what was going on. And I think that also, in a way, made things easier in the way that there was no, how can I put it, there was only a very strong focus on for, for customers and suppliers to make sure supply chains run. And this has stayed for a very long time, it eased a bit in the second half, third quarter, maybe last year again, but picked up again. 
than, than later on. And if we look at it now, with the ocean freight disruption being so strong as it is, and me personally dealing also with a lot of customers and trying to explain what is going on, and they're sometimes not understanding because they don't know, but because it's so strange and so the first time for a lot of people, it's also very interesting to see how these relationships develop over a time like this. And so we came in a way from sending PPEs, then we send all the stuff around it. And now we're also very strongly in making sure we can distribute vaccines throughout the world where, they, where it makes sense and where they are also. Unfortunately, we don't have enough. But I also think that the entire situation will not get better if we don't come to a position that we can vaccinate the vast majority of the world. Because you see outbreaks popping up everywhere and it's not going to go away that quickly, unfortunately. So you mentioned there that you, throughout all of this, you've had a firm focus on your customers' needs and managing the unusual times. But looking at DHL's financial performance, you've also had a very strong focus on that bottom line. Are you pleased with DHL Global Forwarding that part of that financial performance? I think was first quarter almost a record, up 200% almost on EBIT. Were you very pleased with how you've coped with all of this? Well, I don't, I don't know if pleased is the right word. I think it's something where, where you have to see what is happening in the market and how you adjust to it. I think in a way it's become clear that because of the not so good service quality of our carrier partners at the moment, it's important to have a relationship which gets you freight, which gets your, your shipments from A to B, the, the service quality point of view or transit time that you can afford this to happen. So to come back to my garden furniture example, it doesn't make any sense to bring garden furniture to the U to Europe in September, October. The time for garden furniture to be here is March or April. And of course, that costs them more money if there is capacity constraints, which is normal supply and demand thing. And this then, with higher rates, is always a bit more positive for forwarders because they can then, based on that, if you think about a consolidation effect between 5 and 10%, you can make more money if the rate is 10 euros compared to if the rate is 1 euro. But for me, that's only one part of the cake if we look at the result development in 2020 in the first quarter. What we also did last year is we worked very strongly in our digitization projects and continue to roll out our new um, transport management system, which is from WiseTech named CargoWise, which is well known in the industry. DSV and other competitors use the same system. And we come from a legacy where we have a system in place which was developed in the early 80s. So AS400 green screen, and we moved in 2019 already the entire ocean freight organization on the CargoWise system. And in 2020, with the exception of two large countries, all other countries. And we did this in a remote way. And that's the other reason why our results are up very strongly is because especially on the ocean freight side, we are now able to work in the same manner that our competitors are working. And if you bring that kind of transparency, for example, into an organization the size of ours, it also brings a lot of positive energy into the organization because the clerks can suddenly see, for example, if a shipment gets lost, based on the timestamp mythology in the system, where the shipment got lost and can quickly pick up the phone and give the customer a good answer or when the shipment will finally arrive. In the past, this always took two days because you had to somehow get your colleagues on the other side to check and then via email give that information to customers. And here we are experiencing now, again, especially on the ocean freight side, a massive jump in the way that we are able to work and a massive jump also in our productivity and quality. And this is also another big part of why our results 
have gone up so strongly. So I wouldn't say it's all on the disruptive side. It has to do with both a bit what the market is doing and a bit also what we did internally. So your customers are more accepting of digital solutions. And I guess that uptake has probably accelerated through this pandemic. Yes. You're in the right place at the right time in terms of being able to exert control over that process. Yes, I would say that the people in 2016 who made the decision, that was before my time here, made a very good decision to go into what they call at that time the best of breed approach. So they looked through the market, checking if is there something out there on the market or do you want to do it ourselves? And they came to the conclusion there is something out there at the market. It might not be 110% yellow branded with all the nice things you sometimes want. But if we can get the organization to adapt to it in a certain way, this will be really beneficial because we've been very quick in rolling it out. And we rolled out the system globally and we finalized the air freight piece now in Q1 this year in more or less four years. And I think that's unheard of if you talk to our competitors or if you check how long they've been working on revamping their system, it takes them quite longer. So we are now finally at that stage. And that's also a reason why you see the boost in the results. And our air freight colleagues have finished this year. We finished with some very important countries for us being Australia and the other one being the US in Q1. And that now brings us to the position that we now have time also to get all the, the air freight organization also behind the system and that they can start working on the benefits of the system. Because, you know, the transparency, what I explained on the ocean freight side, is something which the air freight folks will now also get into their way of working. And it's great to see that we'll also make progress on that. So I'm, I'm very optimistic also on how we develop as a company going forward. As we do look forward, the previous Low Star podcast examined how economists now believe that uh, post-COVID economic recovery could be tempered to some degree by supply chain failings. And you were talking about the difficulty of getting your products yourself earlier. All sorts of shortages have been reported. It's affecting all sorts of manufacturers and retailers. What is the situation now? Is there any end in sight to the chaos, particularly as it affects uh, European and US markets? I wouldn't say that there's an end to the care. And if I knew that, then I'd probably be working in the wrong, the wrong business. Then I'd probably have to go to work on stock markets and try to figure out how things work there. But it's, it's difficult to really judge. But from a gut feel, I would say the following. On the ocean freight side, I don't believe we will see the disruption going away in this year. I do believe this will take us at least to um, Chinese New Year next year. And then we have to probably reset and see how well the situation on the COVID side has developed. Will there be outbreaks on ports? Do we have a better infrastructural setup in place so that the handling times at the major ports will, will, will become better? I think that, that's really to be seen then. And then in 23, I read that carriers will bring more capacity into the market. And that theoretically should support an ease and a better way of working as soon as that comes in. The question, of course, is how will demand then be in 23? And we're talking now one and a half, two years in, in, in advance. So that's very, very difficult to, to judge. But I do believe that for this year and at least to um, Chinese New Year next year, we will have a similar situation than now. So if you're a shipper, don't, don't gamble, would be our advice on the short-term droppage on the rates. Try to secure longer-term rates at the moment. And we hope all, and we're all working on it to make sure that the situation gets better for everyone involved. Because also for us, it's a situation where we are totally stressed. Normally, if we go back 2019, we take, you know, we pick up a file two times, three times maybe throughout the process and confirming something. These days, we pick it up 10 to 15 times. 
with everything changing and blank sailings and ships and unloading and offloading and all these things that we see. So we are also very much interested actually in, to come into a position where things become much smoother in the way that we work with the carriers and our customers than what we see today where there's also disruption in the communication and the workload. Can I just go back to some of those disruptions that we referenced as we've yeah. been chatting away? What is the exact situation on the Pearl River Delta now? Is Are things easing substantially there? So from my understanding, they're not easing substantially. They are easing a bit, but not substantially. We have a country with China where things are being treated in a very direct and very hard way. And we are still um, telling our customers or advising our customers, it's better to try to figure out different ways using different ports than just the one that we that we also keen and, and fond of using with Yangtiang to able to try to mitigate a bit the situation there. And has there been some modal shift where you've had the capacity either on air or with rail for European ships? A modal shift has been ongoing for, I don't know, probably for, for months now in different types and sizes. Some of our customers were so desperate to get their cargo. They used air capacity and paid very high rates just to get their goods to the receiving countries because they were needed there. But I think the problem is that if you have a shift from ocean to air, it just overwhelms air, right? Because two 20-foot containers, I think, go into one freighter. And, 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 and that's a bit of the difficulty at the moment. So when, when we have a shift from ocean to air, this takes out capacity out of air again. And then, of course, the entire air freight situation gets a bit more worse again. Some of our customers are just hanging in there hoping for the best. And we, we, we try to have good relationships with our carriers in order to make sure that we find decent to good solutions for our customers. And when it comes to rail, yes, we see record numbers in rail, record volumes in rail. But also here we're coming to capacity crunches at the moment. Containers is also a big discussion there. Having the rights to use tracks in certain countries are becoming more difficult. But it still has a better service quality at the moment than Ocean Freight has. And that's why some of our customers are really relying on it. And the good thing on rail is, of course, also you can use it the other way around. I mean, we are mostly talk Asia to Europe when it comes to rail, but also Europe to Asia is, of course, with rail, a very interesting direction and, and, and approach. For, for many of your uh, customers, Tim, the big the big quandary for them, especially if they, the cargo doesn't justify a modal shift, is mm-hmm. is those shipping rates. And I think pre-Yanchan, most analysts would have said there surely is no more upside. And then since the last few weeks, we've had on the major lanes, we've had you know quite substantial increases again. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you didn't expect a new normal until maybe Chinese New Year or sometime around about that first quarter of next year. Where does that leave freight rates? How do you advise your customers? Are you expecting that they could even go up higher because we're not even in the peak season yet, theoretically? Well, theoretically, if you think about air freight, there the big question is, will there be a peak season or not this year on the air freight side? From what I sense and what I hear, there will be a peak season coming at us. This peak season might also be then a bit managed by the capacity because um, if e-commerce starts to grow out of Asia again, say for our Christmas season here, they would take away capacity, which is normally for the freight forwarders for hard cargo. And this then has a capacity crunch, which would mean the rates will go up. So it's important as for any customer to think longer term these days 
and bet on a short-term downfall, which can theoretically also happen. On ocean freight, I don't see the rates going down. For ocean freight, I can only say go and go in long-term deals with your freight forwarder, have a good relationship with them and make sure that if this thing should turn around, that they will speak with you and also make sure that you can get some money back if that happens. But I don't wouldn't foresee, I wouldn't put my personal money on that, that that will happen at the moment. I think there the situation, as I described before, is still very very difficult to, to read and judge. And there, I think 23 will be the year when we can see some relief. But I also believe on the question on, you said that you talked about the new normal. I don't think we will see the rates on a level like we had in 2019 and before coming in the next couple of years. I think the rates will be high. And on the other hand, I also believe that's correct. Because I remember a dis- lot of discussions with our customers who were asking us, so which of the carriers is now in a financial difficult situation and how can we make sure that if that happens, what are your contingency plans if they go in administration while they ship things? That question hasn't come up once now in the last couple of months, which is okay. But I think we also, as an industry, also for the global supply chains, need robust and financial sound partners to make sure that global trade can really be enforced and can really be supported. And for that, I think we need overall higher rate levels in the markets for for air and especially also for ocean who suffered more than air, I think, in the past. And I think this is something which will probably happen after 23 that we see higher rates coming up and that we see more of this, as I described before, long-term, mid-term planning where you can via digitalization work closer together with your customers and your carriers to make sure the goods flow smooth. You are, as a customer, very, very early aware of things go wrong. And we go away from this playing the market and supply and demand and trying to read a crystal ball in these things. Because it's probably if we all look back and what we thought, let's say in 2018, how 19 would be and 19, how 20 would be. Okay, that one totally failed. But if we always try to see how the year would be, we probably all, if we're honest to ourselves, would notice that we were not very good in really figuring that out. We might be able to foresee maybe two or three months, but a whole year and how things can sometimes change quickly and easily and how that all interacts in in the international trade flows is really, and then the rates and the capacity is really something where people put money into building models, which never really worked. And so I think working together closely on a, a bit higher rate level as 19 in the future is probably going to be the outlook. But this working together more closely using digital tools from our customers are getting their data to be able to support them also say with their planning and stuff like that being more open to these things is probably going to be the future tim thank you very much for joining me on the lodestar podcast my pleasure mike all the best to you and stay safe i'd like to thank our sponsor forto for supporting this episode an additional shout to the baltic exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices and a big thanks also to my editing team tom matthews and karen ball thanks for listening everyone we'll be back soon